All right, as you're turning into Romans, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization as we start off this day, right? You ready? There are two types of people in this world. Those who want to be surprised at movies and books, and those who want to know exactly what happens before they see it. And I may be talking to you. Chances are I might be talking to your spouse. You may be thinking, I'm glad you're preaching on this, Pastor. I'm tired of him doing this. I don't, I don't know. Um, sometimes it can be entertaining when this happens. Sometimes not so much. I remember uh, one time I was getting ready to go see a movie. I was telling my, uh, at that time I was going on a date, um, and I was telling my, my mom what movie I was going to go see, and she says, oh, you're going to love it. You're never going to guess that so-and-so's the killer. <laughs> All right, so now that my movie's ruined, I decided to ruin it for my date because misery loves company. And in the movie, as soon as I saw that character, I said, there's something about that guy. There's something about him. I don't know what it is. She's like, you don't know. I was like, I know. Sure, sure enough. She thought I was a, a genius after that. I never did tell her. And, and no, it wasn't my wife, so she still doesn't know. And I doubt she's watching. All right? Um, sometimes it's, it's good to know the ending. Um, I don't want to spend what is now about $20 and some plasma to go see a movie and it not be a good movie. I want to be entertained by it. There have been times my wife and I were watching a show, and she's seen it, and she says, you'll like it. And I believed her, so I'm watching it. And the villain shows up, and the villain's just a, a jerk. And I, and I have to pause the movie and say, honey, I can't watch any more of this movie unless he falls feet first in a wood chipper by the end of the movie. I can't. This guy needs to suffer. All right? I don't want to watch this. I want to know that the good guy wins and that the bad guy loses. All right? Now, to, to, to help you with this, I plan on giving away the ending of Romans 8. All right? We're going to be in Romans 8 until June. But I'm going to go and give away the ending. I'm going to spoil it for you. Now, you're saying, do I have to come back? I'd like for you to. But I want to spoil the ending of Romans 8. Romans 8 is all about assurance. It's all about assurance. This chapter begins, as we're going to see this morning, with the declaration that there's no condemnation for the believer in Christ Jesus. And it's going to end, as we see in June, with this affirmation that there exists no separation from God's love for the believer. It's an understanding that God has, has liberated us from the consequences of our in-Adam nature, and he's asked us to now, liberate us to now walk in a newness of life while we await Christ's return and our being in his presence for all eternity. Now, here's why this is so important. This theme of assurance takes, Paul puts it right in the midst of this. Now, remember last week when Pastor Dwayne uh, preached on Romans 7, he talked about how we believers struggle with sin. And at the end of Romans 8, he talks about suffering for Christ. It's, it makes sense, doesn't it, for Paul to put assurance right in the middle? Because those are the two times when we really, really struggle with assurance. If we're honest with ourselves about our walk with Christ this morning, we would say that there are two times or two things in our lives that cause us to stumble in our faith, and that's when we sin or when we suffer. When we sin, we think, well, wait a second, how could God love me if I did this? How could God love me? I'm a believer in Christ. He's died for my sins. And how could he still love me if I did this thing? 
Or we experience suffering, we wonder what kind of God would let us, this happen to us or what we've done to deserve it. And why would God allow it altogether? Those are the two times I personally believe we struggle with assurance is when we sin and we're suffering. So, this passage we're going to look at today is for several people here today. And as I was writing this, as I was thinking about this this week, I had these people in mind. Here we go. First, it's for the person, this passage today is for the person here who's not yet accepted Christ as Savior. You may be here with a friend. You may be here with a guest. You may have just walked in our doors or found us online. And we don't believe that anything happens by accident. We believe in divine appointments. We're glad you're here and you're listening. Because we, I believe this passage is for you today. You may have never trusted in Christ, and you're wondering if God could even accept you because of your past. It's, it's also for the believer whose past still haunts them. And they doubt if they can ever be free from that grip of guilt and shame. It's also for the believer who struggles with the idea that God still loves and accepts them even after they sin against him and others. It's also for the believer who struggles with the idea of how to live and navigate the gospel of grace in the midst of this current fallen world. And there's many more here today that this could be for. But with that, I'd like to take a look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Now, as I read the passage today, you're going to see and hear a simple three-letter word quite often. It's the, it's the word for, F-O-R. And in the Greek, this word carries the idea of because. So, if you'll permit me, as I read this passage today, I'm going to substitute for, I'm going to substitute because for that word for. And see if it helps us understand what's happening. Because Paul is really kind of building on this. I'm an English teacher. If I could diagram this for you, and as I said diagramming a sentence, I heard some of you moan. This diagram would go like this. Here's a line, then this, then this, then this. It would just because it builds on the argument. So here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. I'm going to stop there for a minute. We talked about this last week. What the, the, Jesus has done for us, God has done for us what the law could not do, declare us righteous. No amount of law keeping could do that because it was impossible. Only Christ could do this. Because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Because to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, did you see how Paul, as he wrote a sentence, you could see him going, well, let me explain that. That's, here's why that happens. And I just said that, let me explain that too. He's building up this argument. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because of what God's done for us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father, thank you for your word today. Anything I could add to it is just commentary. And Lord, I don't want to add anything to your word. I want, to, I want your word to be clear to everyone here, myself included. God, I pray that you would change us through your word today. If I say anything that's merely opinion of mine, let it be forever forgotten, but let your word be what is remembered and may it change us more like your son Jesus. As we, as we sit right now, those of us who are believers, we have been declared righteous by faith. We await being made righteous. God, help us to be more and more like Jesus while we wait for your return. Change us through your word today, we pray in Christ's great name. Amen. Now, the first thing that must be mentioned before we begin this study in Romans 8 is the fact that this is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in this liberated life. Now, if you look at Romans up to this point, and only really kind of nerds like me do this, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 20 times in this chapter. In Romans 1 through 7, seven times. So much so that Bible teacher R. Kent Hughes once stated that Romans 8 is the chapter of liberation through God's Spirit. He says it's all about the Holy Spirit. And that seems to fit Paul's consistent teaching about the Holy Spirit. He regularly places the believer's freedom, your freedom, my freedom, squarely on the shoulders of the Holy Spirit. It's really neat when you see Paul do this. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul writes, Now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And this is in line with what the teachings of the Old Testament taught us in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, here it is, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And interesting enough, this is the very same passage that Jesus spoke about, he quoted in Luke chapter 4 about his ministry. So according to Isaiah, Jesus, and Paul, the Holy Spirit is the liberator of the believer in Christ. That's what I want to really focus in on today, that the Holy Spirit is the liberator of the believer in Christ. We're going to spend all of Romans 8 talking about the Holy Spirit. Today, he's the liberator. He's the one who sets us free. One of my favorite pastors and authors of another time, John Stott, once stated that the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. Now, I know that sounds weird, and we don't like to say those kind of terms. It makes us sound different, but it's true. That is to say, a life that's animated, 
sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. I love this line. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable and indeed impossible. If you did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, all you're doing in discipleship is just behavior modification, just self-help. Just to pull over the bus and part for a minute, it is very difficult to do the things we are asked to do in Scripture without the Holy Spirit because one of the things we're asked to do in Scripture is love one another. And listen, I love you, but I'm looking around at some unlovely people and, if I looked in the, and when I look in the mirror, the first thing I see is an unlovely person. You understand what I'm saying? It's hard to love me. I don't know how Jill's done it for 22 years. She deserves presence. All right? But we, through the Holy Spirit, can love one another. I can't do it with all my own strength. In my own strength, I'm going to wait till you make me mad, and then we're done. Right? But we're asked to love one another. And it's impossible to do without the Holy Spirit. And it's because of the Holy Spirit that we can live a liberated life. Now, I want to ask this question. What does it mean to be liberated in your life? I know that sounds like a little bit of a self-help. Like I'm saying, believe in yourself and be a, be a champion. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, what does it mean to be liberated by the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to do that? So, what I want to do for you today is give you what I believe are three things that Paul is given us in this text that it means to be liberated by the Holy Spirit, okay? These are not my thoughts. This is what I see Paul saying about the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? First, we are liberated by the Holy Spirit from our past. We are liberated from the Holy Spirit by our past. Now, as I say that, I'm just hearing, man, I hope that's true. Beloved, I'm I'm of the opinion that regret can be the most destructive of our frail human emotions. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did, we would see hands all across the room. And then the ones who did not raise their hands would now have regret for lying to us. We all struggle with some form of regret. I believe that not a day goes by where you and I do not feel remorse or regret about something from our past, whether years or minutes ago. And I don't think I'm alone in this. We're inclined to dwell on our past mistakes or sinful decisions, refusing to believe that we can ever ever escape the regret, guilt, or shame that it's caused. Now, beloved, I want to be very clear here. Or I'm going to say how we talk in our home when when the kids were younger and when they needed our attention. I need you to look right at me. That's a lie. It is an absolute lie from the enemy that you, can, you can't ever escape that guilt and remorse. You might go, well, hey, Rick, there's some good things about guilt. I'm not talking about good guilt. I'm not talking about you did something wrong, you need to get it right with someone. I'm talking about that, that, that voice that beats you up and tells you you're not worthy to serve the Lord because of your past. That's what I'm talking about. And if you'll permit me, I'm going to talk to that lie a little bit. I'm going to speak truth to you here for a minute. This lie has been allowed to take residence in your heart for far too long. And what I want to suggest to you is that the truth of our liberation in Christ completely obliterates this lie that we can never escape our past. Look at verses 1 through 4 again with me. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, I could stop there, but Paul keeps going. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see what Paul's saying here? There's no condemnation to be given to the believer in Christ. Why? Because God has already condemned sin in Christ when Christ paid the penalty for all sin through his death on the cross. He puts it right there with the gospel. And I would even ask to you, and this is the truth I want to leave you with, for us to suggest that we cannot escape the guilt or regret over any sin we've committed is to say that that's a sin that Christ did not die for. And you don't want to open up that can of worms. You don't want to say that there are sins that Christ didn't die for. Because that wrecks all of biblical theology. So I want want to speak right to you for a minute. If that's you right now, if you're thinking, ah, Rick, you just don't know what I've done. I need you to look right at me because I'm going to speak truth to you. That sin was paid for on the cross. You don't have to wear it any longer. You may be choosing to wear it, but you don't need to. You need to take it away. For us to think that our past is always before us is to say that Christ's sacrifice for our sin is somehow insufficient. And that leaves us to deal and dwell on our sinful past. Friends, this cannot be, or what Paul might say, what a ghastly thought. What a ghastly thought to think that for a moment, Christ's death did not somehow cover all your sin. What a ghastly thought to think that God somehow is still holding on to your sin in his mind. Even after the psalmist writes that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You see, the whole idea I want you to understand here is that God the Father has placed all our sin, our past, our present, and our future on God the Son so that God the Holy Spirit could set you free to walk in newness of life. Beloved, that's the gospel. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. Does that mean we can still sin? Don't go back to Romans 6, guys. We're not to continue in sin so that grace may abound. That's a ghastly thought too. But what Paul is writing this about is to say, listen, I just finished talking to you about your struggle with sin. You're going to struggle but I want you to understand you're secure. Number two, we are liberated by the Holy Spirit to a glorious future, to a glorious future. You see this in verses 10 through 11 of this passage, this glorious future. Paul writes in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, in this passage, Paul's making a comparison, which is what is sometimes called the now and the not yet in which we all live, those of us who've trusted Christ as our Savior. Paul says that our bodies are subject to eventual death. And God has promised to raise these bodies once again through the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. That is what the now and not yet means. Brothers and sisters, we've been declared to be righteous right now. But we await Christ's return when we will be made righteous. 
We're not there yet. We're declared righteous, but not yet made righteous. We're now declared righteous, but we're not yet made that way. We're in the now, the not yet. Now, while this has been alluded to before in Romans, we've looked at a couple passages on that. Paul makes an explicit statement here regarding about our future. Notice the wording here. He's not talking about dying and going to heaven per se. That's not what this is about. This term he uses here is about a Holy Spirit-enabled resurrection. It's like the term he uses in 1 Corinthians 15, 15 through 19, when he says we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. He talks about a physical resurrection in which we are going to be raised to walk in a perfect life made righteous. He does this again in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, when he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, we've been liberated to a magnificent future by the Holy Spirit where we will one day be raised from the dead and made completely righteous in the presence of God. Now, as I say that, our first thought is, yeah, I look forward to the day when I don't struggle with sickness or some disease that I struggle with. And that's great, but I look forward to the day when I don't struggle with my sin any longer. I've said this before, almost as a joke, but a little bit serious. In the kingdom, we might even like each other, guys. We're going to get past our differences, and we're going to think back on those things like, I can't believe I let that little thing get between us. I really believe that. I believe there's going to be some apologies then. Look, I'm sorry. I was a jerk. Me too. Because we, didn't, we don't even realize how messed up we are. Because deep down, we think we're the standard of excellence, and that everybody else, ah, if only you knew better. We're like Lucy and Peanuts who's sitting at the psychiatry box she makes with therapy for five cents and says, if the world listened to me, it'd be a better place. And see, I think in the kingdom, when we get that, we get those eyes, we have those spiritual eyes and we're, we take those blinders off of sin, we're going we're gonna to interact with each other. We can look past those differences we had. I look forward to that day. But because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit we are been, our lives have been placed on a splendid trajectory that's going to conclude in our being made righteous in the presence of Christ. It's going to happen, just not yet. And because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have an awareness of our present new life in Christ as well as the assurance of eternal life in the future. And that brings me to my final focus this morning. And you might have noticed I, got, I, went, out of, I went out of order. I went from past to future, but I ignored something, we're liberated by the Holy Spirit to enjoy a secure present. We're liberated by the Holy Spirit to enjoy a secure present. Now, I chose to place this aspect last on purpose. And the reason why is because often when we ponder the gift of our salvation, this final part gets overlooked. 
Yeah, we've been declared righteous. That's awesome. Can't wait to get to heaven. But in the meantime of the now and not yet, we forget. Our redeemed past and our glorious future can take center stage, causing us to ignore the grace given to us in the here and now. And what I want to suggest to you is that's the most beautiful part of this message. It takes up the most text in this passage. Look at verse 5. We're going to read 5 and 9 and then 12 through 17. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, brothers and sisters, as we wait for that glorious future that's coming, those of us in, in Christ can enjoy a life because of the security we have in Christ. Now, let me stop here just for a second. Isn't that really what we want Isn't it what we desperately want? We want to know that we're secure before God because whole religious systems have been built by humans to get this. Do the right thing or avoid doing the wrong thing and you'll be fine. Don't do the right thing or do the wrong thing and you might be in jeopardy of displeasing God and having his feelings towards you changing. Now, let me say again, let me speak truth to you again. The problem here is that that kind of thinking has a hint or like a a sliver of truth to it? Because we're called to live holy lives. We're called to set our our minds on the things of the Spirit instead of the things of the flesh. But the problem is we often stop at verse 13, and we don't read the rest. The overwhelming truth of this passage, friends, is that we are now children of God. Now. Right now. Look at 14 through 17 again. All who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, we've been adopted, adopted into the family of God by the Spirit of God. And that's a beautiful term. He even says, we have a new title we can call him, Abba, Father. Now, let me clarify something. Abba does not mean daddy, all right? I've heard that. It's it's, it's one of those, oh, that's a sweet phrase, that preaches. But it's wrong. It's wrong. It is a term of endearment, don't get me wrong. 
It's the Aramaic word for father, often used in close family settings. It is the name that a father will be called by their children. And it's the word that Jesus used to address God, specifically in Mark 14. He says, you can do this too. And what Paul is saying here is that that we believers have been adopted into God's family, and we enjoy the same kind of intimate relationship with God. And as children, our relationship with the Father has certain perks and privileges that we can't be ignored. Here at, um, at Salem, at the day school, um, I have my office kind of in a little hideaway. And right now, Miss Julie hangs out. She's my gatekeeper. This week, I heard screaming and running. And I'm like, oh no, what's happening? And about that time, one of my children ran into my office. I'm like, buddy, what are you running in here for? I was already in a meeting. He ran in. Now, when I looked, see, it was because Miss Julie was chasing him. I think she just wanted a hug. Okay? But he came right in. Why? Because he is my kid. I could be talking to anyone. He has access. I could be talking to, I could be on the most important phone call of the day. My children have access to me. Why? Because I'm dad. Well, you're the principal. You're the head of school. Doesn't matter. I'm dad first. Of all the titles I have, I like dad the best. Why? It gives me access. These kids can get to me anytime they want. Anytime they want. So much so that when I go home, the phone gets turned off. You can't reach me. I tried calling you after this certain time. Why didn't you pick up? Because I was with my kids. What were you doing important? Whatever they thought was important. I might have been crashing with Ella and her, talking to her in her room, talking about the day, talking about cool music, introducing her to cool music, not Taylor. No, sorry. Sorry. Okay. I might have been hanging out with Owen, telling some dark jokes and laughing when we shouldn't be. And getting in trouble with mom. Be having conversations about with Eli because he's getting ready to graduate. He's already ready to go. I'm like, buddy, give me one more year. I'm not ready to let go yet. But I have, they have access to me. Listen, just like that, we have access to the Father. He doesn't push us away. F.F. Bruce in his epistle of Paul to the Romans writes this. I love this. Well, I did like it, but I guess the quote's gone. Oh, here we go. The term adoption may smack somewhat of artificiality in our ears. But in the first century AD, an adopted son was a son, look at this, deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was in no way inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. Brothers, isn't that, brothers, isn't that remarkable? Isn't it remarkable that the fact that God uses that term to describe our relationship with him, that our standing is forever settled and can never be changed no matter what. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any less, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us any more. This secure life is marked by confidence that we belong to Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And what's interesting about the teaching of the New Testament is to guarantee this adoption, we are given a seal. 
In that time period, when an adoption record was confirmed, they would do a signature or a seal to confirm the validity, the genuineness of that adoption. And you'd almost carry that around like it's proof. And the Bible tells us that God has given us that today. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers as a guarantee of our adoption. Friends, we don't have to live in fear of keeping God happy with us. God doesn't work like we do because our acceptance of and for others is contingent on our performance in some way. But God doesn't work like that. God is forever determined to set his eternal affection upon you, which cannot change. Now, if you would permit me to get personal for a moment. Now, this truth is clear to you. I might be saying this, you go like, Clonard, we got this. You, you teach this all the time. Good. It's my one note. Same text. I'm a different text, same sermon all the time. You're safe. You ready? But let me get personal for a moment. It may be clear to you, but it may not always be clear to others. My grandmother was raised in a church that taught, for whatever reason, and what I believe, is a perversion of the gospel. This is my grandmother. She was taught that a person could accept Christ as Savior, trusting that he is who the Bible says he is, and that he did what the Bible says he did, but that your eternal destiny was not certain until death. She was taught this ever since she was a little girl. In her mind, and in the mind of that church, faith in Christ was the starting point. But the entrance into God's eternal presence was contingent on behavior and faithfulness to certain religious activities. You had to be at church when they, when they had church. And if you did that, that's a, good, that's a check mark. You had to tithe. That's a check mark. Several times after my conversion, I tried to talk with her about having assurance of her salvation. And I remember her distinctly saying to me, saying, Ricky, now she's the only woman who can call me that. We'll do church discipline if you try it today. She would say, Ricky, I know that Jesus died for me and that he rose again. But you never know you can go to heaven until you get there. Now, about nine years ago, my grandmother went home to be with Christ. And I said that that way on purpose. I use the phrase, she went home to be with Christ, because that is exactly what happened. Whether she knew it or not, her eternal destiny was secure. Her eternal destiny was secure because she had placed her faith in Christ for salvation. Now, the entire time, her whole life after she did that, she was in him and secure. But she didn't get to enjoy that security. She didn't get to. She worried and fretted over keeping God happy in some way or means, refusing to accept that God was forever pleased by Christ on her behalf. And she was blinded by a false teaching that was seeking to please God according to some man-designed standard rather than embracing a life liberated by the Holy Spirit and walking that freedom. She's with Christ now. But she did not enjoy this Christian life during this time. Friends, I may have just described you. Maybe you're here this morning, you've trusted in Christ your Savior, but you still sit haunted by your past. You doubt if you can ever truly be free from the grip of past guilt and shame. Maybe you're here and you struggle with the idea that God still loves and accepts you when you sin against Him and others. 
Beloved, because of the fact that God has chose to put you in his family and set his eternal affections upon you, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. I promise you that. You are secure in his love because of Christ, not you. Maybe you're here today and you've not accepted Christ as Savior. And maybe you're wondering if God could ever accept you as his own child because of your past. Friends, let me speak truth to you. And be clear as I can and say that God the Father has chosen to set his eternal affection on you and is ready to seal you with the Holy Spirit as you place your trust in Christ alone. May we rest in the fact that we've been set free from our past through the work of Christ. May we look forward to the day when we've been, we will be made righteous, righteous in the presence of Christ. And while we wait for that day, may we rest in the truth that we've been declared righteous solely on our, based on our faith in Christ's death, burial, and victorious resurrection. Will you pray with me this morning? And as you pray, I want to give you some prompts right now. However this text has spoken to you today, maybe you're here and you're wondering, and you've always wondered how God could forgive me, even though I've done all these horrible things. I want you to take some time and thank God for giving you the Holy Spirit that sets you free from your past. You may not believe you're set free from your past, but you are. Ask God to help you understand that you have been set free. Take some time to thank God for setting us free to enjoy a glorious future when he's going to make us righteous. And pray the prayer that Pastor Jimmy prays. Even so, come Lord Jesus today. And maybe, maybe what you need to focus on today is asking God to help you enjoy the security you have in Christ right now. Maybe you've been thinking that God is never going to be satisfied with you. Friends, take the time now to ask God to help you recognize your security as an adopted, loved child of God. Father, thank you for your word. It is my prayer that I've been faithful to it today. It's my prayer that your word is clear in the hearts of my friends here. And it's my prayer that your Holy Spirit would do in our hearts anything you want. May your son forever be magnified in Salem Baptist Church. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen.